Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to yet another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, one where I am going to be diving into four major challenges to building a successful group practice, a group practice of any size, shape, matter, or form for that matter. These are questions we get all too often in subject matter we definitely took a deep dive into recently at our conference in Phoenix. So I hope you'll join me on the show today. It'll be a note-taking episode, you know that, and it always requires a great cup of coffee. So get on it. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for being in the audience. Thank you for referring and, and sending the podcast to all of your colleagues. Our subscriber downloads continue to grow week over week, and we're thrilled predominantly because all of you are such big advocates for what we do in the subject matter that we share. We, uh, as you all know, we recently hosted uh, a conference that we call Scaling from Clinician to CEO. It was out in Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona, um, October 11th through 13th, and was a uh, a tremendous conference. The audience was completely dialed in, highly interactive, asked unbelievable questions all throughout, and really was like a conference I've never attended, let alone hosted before. And you know, some of that subject matter is all about uh, foundational structures, uh, getting the the foundation of the house right uh, if you're going to build a group practice. And some people are um, in those early phases of building an emerging group. They've added a second or a third or a fourth location, and they're they're looking to to build upon successes and not just do learn by trial and error, obviously. And others are still at one location and they're contemplating, is this journey for me? Um, I don't know what I don't know. And that's a that's a healthy mindset or a, to a degree skepticism to have. Um, and, uh, you know, let's face it, it it hasn't stopped a lot of your uh, professional colleagues out there from building a mess along the way and replicating failure. So I applaud all of you who seek education, who attend these types of conferences, who send in email in questions to me or um, uh, or, or, you know, reach out and book a call even to explore some of where your business is now, what you think you want to have happen in the coming, uh, two to three to five years and, and really think through how you define success for yourself. That proactive mindset will serve you well in life, in building a business and being a spouse or a parent, uh, and every other way, shape, manner, and form. So tip of the cap to you for today. I want to talk about the four major challenges that we see most often in terms of building a group. There are a lot more than four. There are 4,000 probably. But these are, these are ones of significantly great order of magnitude 
um, and ones um, that if you get wrong can absolutely sink the ship. Uh, so getting these four right doesn't guarantee your success, but I would say it, it increases the likelihood and the probability, and it will hopefully increase your confidence as well. Um, these are also things that we typically go through with uh, people who come and spend a day with us on on a discovery day. Um, I think I've mentioned discovery day on the podcast before. It's probably been a while. It's a one-on-one day. Um, it's one of the, uh, the, I would say, like entry-level services that we offer. But the nice thing about it is um, that it can be as structured or unstructured as you would like. This is not a group setting, meaning it's not a, a classroom style teaching presentation where you're amongst 10 to 20 colleagues. Uh, it is one-on-one in a small conference room with either me or DeWalker or Mark Flock. The three of us probably teach the vast majority of them. Uh, and and every, every session with a different client is completely different because all of you bring different questions with you, different biases. Your businesses are in different stages. Um, you may have made mistakes and you want to learn from them or you haven't really started your growth path. Everybody's a little bit different. And I would tell you that in a discovery day session, we come in armed with a deck of about 80 pages, PowerPoint deck, and you get a printed copy of it. And it's all about the fundamentals and foundations of group practices. It may be that we teach out of that deck, you know, the vast majority of the day uh, to you for the to get the questions you want answered. Or it could be that we never even open the deck and it's all playing jazz all day long around the questions you have, what you want to get solved and working things through in an Excel model or a whiteboard or a combination of maybe some other presentation decks. So the beauty of those discovery days uh, and the thing that clients like most about them is that it's all about you. And you have access for six to seven hours with a with a quali- I would like to think a qualified advisor to be able to answer the questions you know to ask. But along the way, we probably uncover just as many questions that you haven't thought to ask or things you haven't considered because you haven't gotten that far along yet. And that's really the invaluable piece of it. I hosted a client earlier this week, um, and I think this is his third year in a row. Uh, of coming to spend a day with us um, uh, on a discovery day. We didn't go into the presentation deck whatsoever. He's far beyond that. And this was almost more something akin to like, I don't know if I'd call it a strategic planning session, but it wasn't far off from it. I mean, we did some heavy lifting around monumental pieces in the business and knowing him as well as I do and having had the history with him as as long as we have. I, I know I know where his business is. I know what his mindset is. I, I think I know what he wants to achieve. And we really were grinding on a lot of that information together. And that that's kind of fun for me because it's all unscripted, you know? Um, so sometimes it's fun to teach out of a deck foundational stuff and really feel like you're providing a lot of, of value to people that they didn't know and they haven't experienced yet and that's all necessary and then other times it's equally fun to to kind of be uh challenged at every turn of the wheel and do everything kind of impromptu and have this free-flowing dialogue um uh where it's where it's almost collaborative with the client so i I say that because uh, before i dive into these uh four challenges 
there are a number of you that are out there in the audience that are maybe in two camps. One, you're you're thinking about building a group or you've started in the early, early stages. Um, maybe you've made a mistake. Maybe you haven't. You, you know, the next couple of iterations of building the business, you don't know what you don't know. A, a, a discovery day is an ideal uh, solution probably at this stage of your journey to get the 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 foundation set and to get the right pieces in place and to give you the confidence that now you have the knowledge to take those next steps, whatever it is you're intending to do. Um, and then the other piece is, or the other part of those of you in the audience is you may already be down your growth journey and you might be at five or six locations. I hosted a um, a long-standing uh, follower of ours and friend of ours um, out of Pennsylvania recently, who's got you know between five and ten locations, and he's at a completely different phase of the journey than most people. But it was more akin to a, a level set and a strategic planning session for him as he turns into next year. So the beauty of a day like that being unscripted is we we can kind of take it wherever you want to, wherever your business is situated at this point in time. And at this point in time of the calendar year, I think it's also we see a lot of people coming in and spending a day with us, you know, around the end of uh, uh, the calendar year and the early, early weeks of the new calendar year in a, in a way to kind of uh, have some type of a planning session for new initiatives and, and things they got to solve for the year. So I say that contextually because um, a lot of this, you know, I can't. I can't condense six to seven hours into 20 minutes, obviously, but I'm going to try to give you some of the blocking and tackling. So let's let's transition into what we think are really four major challenges to building a group. And, and like I say, there are a lot more than this. Um, and just getting these four right doesn't guarantee your success, but making a colossal mistake in any one or certainly two of these four will more than likely create a lot of adversity and potentially sink the boat. Um, so the four that we identify most often are in a founder, owner, operator driven business, replacing yourself in a clinical capacity. Now that's kind of face value, but I'm really talking about doing it without taking an income hit. The second thing is obviously the biggest challenge of any group practice, and you hear us talk about this a lot, and that's attracting and retaining associates. You could almost say attracting, motivating, and retaining associates. Um, and, and I know we talk about that ad nauseum because it continues to be the, the biggest challenge of, of building any group, and it doesn't matter if you're two locations or 1,200 locations. The third one is obviously avoiding the debt funding wall. Um, which happens around $2 million in total loan exposure. If attracting and, and retaining associates is the biggest problem of every group practice all up and down the, the food chain, I would tell you that um, securing the appropriate uh, commitment of debt funds is the Achilles heel of every emerging group. And, and we see all too often that it brings a growth strategy to a grinding halt at some point in time. And sometimes I, I would say forces the, the owner to sell the business prior to when they would otherwise want to, because they can't access more debt funds for growth and, and you don't want to just stand pat. So now you you're kind of forced into taking the business to market, it, you know, and, and arguably 
that's not what you would want to do at that point in time. The last of the four is executing on growth strategy. And that's regardless of whether it's buy or build, that's really a firm understanding of creating a more valuable business and more valuable company in terms of the value of equity that you have, equity on balance sheet, uh, and understand a fundamental understanding of free cash flow. So let's let's go through um, some of these in a little bit more detail. So I said the first one was replacing yourself in a clinical capacity. You know, that's not necessarily hard if you can find an associate that can do the vast majority of the work that you can do from a clinical complexity standpoint. It's kind of at face value. Doing it in a way that does not compromise your standard of living on the home front is a completely different question. And this is the one that most people don't anticipate how to replace themselves. They think about replacing themselves only from a clinical capacity standpoint, like do kind of find an associate to do the work. Um, and sometimes that's a, yeah, sometimes that's a, maybe sometimes that's a, well, if I do, it's going to take me a while to, to, to develop this associate. So it, it could be gradual over time. It's hardly ever an abrupt transition. The thing that catches most people out is that when you start paying somebody to do the work that you're no longer doing, it, it, it results typically in an income reduction to you as the founder. And that is um, an alarming type of a mindset for somebody when they're not prepared for it. And if you have no margin for error on the home front, it can create challenges around family dynamics and spending habits um, that place undue burdens on cash flow management of the business. There's only so much cash to go around. And this is a really complicated one. It's typically the first transition that people start to make as they're adding additional locations because rightfully so, they think that they need to spend time in all the different locations and they can't be um, obligated to the chair in their core business to the degree that they always have been. Uh, four days a week, for example. It's a natural transition. You think you're being proactive about it to a degree that you are. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the year, you realize that you suffered a, uh, a six-figure income reduction. And, and now the alarm bells go off. So this is one that with proper planning, guidance, um, and, and a little bit of modeling, uh, you at least know how you have to make it up and what you have to overcome. But I would tell you, for those of you who are who are contemplating building a, a group practice and you're at one location, you know, replacing yourself is is going to be the first challenge and the first punch that you take. Uh, and you really need to understand with eyes wide open, you know, what your standard of living is, your your true expense structure, and how to go about replacing yourself gradually to facilitate that so that you don't sink the family boat as well as the business boat simultaneously. It's a daunting proposition and one that far more than 50% of the people get wrong and it creates a uh, an oh, oh no type of a moment. Second one, attracting and retaining associates. Um, this is one where you know we have started doing uh, more work with what I would call emerging groups. Traditionally, our business has been focused on 
you know, groups that are, I don't know, four, five, six or more locations um, with a pretty, pretty fast growth clip uh, to them. And this is a, a scenario where I think just our, our work and our business over the last two years has evolved in a way that we're starting to work with more emerging groups that may be one to two locations. And they're, they're interested in, in you know, building a five to 10 location group over the next five to 10 years. And so, you know, we talk about uh, uh, attracting and retaining associates from the context of what what motivates the associate to choose your business over another that they would like to join. And certainly the ownership piece and the equity side of it is a is a primary driver of that. But also, you know, now as we do more work in those emerging groups, um, occasionally a, a, a minority buy in. Um, more than an earn-in, a, a buy-in uh, of 20 to 40% at a practice location uh, can be completely appropriate. Um, so while we talk about earned equity models more than anything else because of the dynamics of a group practice and how, how you can use equity as currency if it's a valuable business and that's totally appropriate, um, there's also a place for um I don't want to use the word traditional associate buy-ins because these aren't necessarily traditional, um, but a buy-in structure where you receive cash in exchange for some percentage of ownership at a practice level and sometimes occasionally at a management company level can completely be appropriate. Uh, and it's an immediate, um, there is no vesting schedule to it. So it's an immediate ownership stake. And this is truly one where we're trying to ascertain where your business is now the value of it, the upside potential of it, and then the future growth prospects to determine what's the right tool in the toolbox. At the end of the day, I still think that, you know, people are are motivated by being an owner or, or having the word partner on their business card or their name on the door uh, or being able to talk about it at a cocktail party and say, yeah, you know, I'm part owner in that business. I mean, that, that makes there's there's some type of intrinsic value to that from a stability standpoint for your associate. And that goes a long way to um, uh, mindset. It goes a long way to overall commitment. It goes a long way to to going above and beyond to take care of the staff and the patients and to do good quality work um, and to to be a quality teammate. And I think for you, it it lessens the the headache in terms of potential turnover. So, the the answer on uh, attracting associates um, is uh, the the onboarding piece, the track record of success for your business, being being part of a growing organization, you know, solving for certainty around their income. All of that is is uh, very valid when you're recruiting somebody uh, and trying to attract them to your business. Motivating them uh, is is one where um, certainly they, we're all motivated by money. So the opportunity to learn more advanced skills and and become a more productive clinician to do more advanced work and generate more personal income is is highly motivational. But being able to be on an ownership track for a business, be it buy-in or earn-in or a hybrid of both even, uh, is intensely motivational. And then that plays directly to the retention piece of it. And, you know, if you do have uh, an equity solution, the likelihood is that you're going to uh, retain those people for indefinitely versus the uh, normal levels of turnover that we see 
um, in the uh, uh, in, in the profession uh, professional space here. Um, the third uh, major challenge is what I what I've started to refer to as the Achilles heel, and that's you know we call it the debt funding wall. Uh, we call it growth capital solutions at Polaris. The key on this thing is that you know retail banks love lending money to dentists because y'all never default, uh, and that is still incredibly appropriate and totally true, even in a rising rate environment. Um, you know, the businesses that you're able to buy and, and operate, especially when you're the owner operator uh, of the business and the primary revenue generator for the business, that's a very secure uh, lending proposition for a bank. That being said, you start getting into three to four plus locations and and they the banks t- quickly lose their appetite. or when they when they do have an appetite for that type of lending, we see, you know, an an escalation in lending rates because the default rate risk goes up. So it's it's a matter of math. It's not a you know uh, any type of rocket science there. You know that being said, it is the Achilles heel because all too often people think that they start out with one bank, you know, for the first one to two locations. When that bank the funding dries up. They go to bank number two. That's only going to fund for locations three and four. A little bit higher rate, subordinated uh, risk for the the secondary bank. Once that funding dries up, they go to a third bank for locations, you know, five and six or something like that. They end up with an SBA or municipal type lender, and ultimately, you you end up with six to eight practices funded by three to four different banks. And at that point. The game of musical banks is like musical chairs. The music stops. Eventually, banks are going to run out of comfort around a, a subordinated credit profile risk where they are simply just not going to lend more money even on the uh, additional locations solely because they're too far down the line in terms of risk on receivership. So this has a predict- predictable finality to it. Uh, and it is something that is a terrible way to build a business because it's not reliable. And in an ideal world, you would like to know that you have a commitment to fund you in your back pocket. And then you are able to go out and look for practices to buy almost with a conditional pre-approval, which it essentially is. But we think about when we were buying our first house, you know, and you got pre-approved for a mortgage, you kind of knew how much you could spend, right? I mean, the bank gave you pre-approval. It wasn't outright approval, but they they gave you the confidence to go look for a home. And you know, you knew what your budget was, you knew how much you might have to put down, uh, and you knew what roughly you could calculate what your monthly payment might be. You know, a, a credit facility from a bank in business-to-business lending is not too dissimilar from that. And the confidence that you have on uh, an acquisition strategy is one where you speed is of the essence, right? If you find a practice you want to buy and you can come to a meeting of the minds with the seller or the broker, and then you got to go back to the bank and you got to start that entire banking process, that can take a long time to get it closed. With a credit facility, you know, you can all too often close just as quickly as a private equity backed uh, enterprise level DSO can. And so finding, you, you know, your growth strategy of finding practices to buy 
And then knowing that you can move quickly to close the deal gives you a ton of confidence and allows you to execute at a higher level. Uh, it also, at least potentially, could limit some of your competition. And, and that is a great position for you to be in. So this Achilles heel of banking done the right way, think of it as musical banks. You know, it's musical chairs. The music runs out. If you're just going to keep going from one retail bank to the other, you, you know, and have three or four lenders over six or eight locations that you're not going to build a 10 to 20 location group that way. Um, so really finding out what your growth strategy is, how to execute it, and then getting connected with the right business to business lender is of paramount importance. The last of the four major challenges um, that we see create significant complications uh, are around executing on growth strategy. Um, for those that are employing a, a de novo strategy, which we love, you really have to understand, once again, how the bank views success um, on a de novo. And that is not simply a revenue number. It's never a revenue number. Um, it is all too often not what we would call operational break-even. Operational break-even is when you generate enough revenue to cover your expenses and you make a dollar for that month or that period or even that year. Yeah, that's positive. You're in the black, not in the red, but that's not the solution. The solution is really one where not only do you break even from a free cash flow standpoint, meaning you cover all operational overhead as well as the the debt payments for the year or the period, and you, ha you have net positive free cash flow, but you want to understand the leverage ratios that the banks insist upon before they make a, a decision to lend you more money on the next one. That's the key to it on a de novo. And if you understand banking leverage ratios, you understand when they're more willing to fund the next one after you have both proof of concept on your first de novo and a, a successful track record of uh, a volume of EBITDA that meets their leverage ratios with the amount that you borrowed from them in the first place. So de novo can be a great strategy. There are a handful of organizations that have relied on it at scale, and there are a lot more organizations that are using it as a complement to their acquisition-based growth strategy. But I would tell you that none of them operate on a hope being the cornerstone of their strategy. They know the numbers they have to solve for. Uh, it's somewhat formulaic from a new patient flow standpoint, and solving for that particular outcome is critically important if you're going to use de novo to do it. Obviously, on acquisitions, the things we work with clients most on uh, is not just what to what to pay for the practice um, that you're about to acquire, but really understanding where you're going to make quantifiable impact on a revenue generation standpoint, an expense reduction standpoint, meaning marginal expansion if you're able to do both, and then how we're able to satisfy our needs for positive free cash flow after we take into account debt service. And when we do that, it gives us confidence that we are operators, not aggregators. And that is a, a theme that, that we have been talking about for well over uh, six to nine months now, operators versus aggregators. And it's critically important uh, when you are using an acquisition-based strategy that it's not just buy and maintain, but it's buy and improve. Uh, and if you can do that, then you're really cooking with gas and you have a, a strategy you can execute on. If you can't, 
or if you overpay and cannot get the um, uh, operational improvement in the business, then you are living on borrowed time. And what will happen is that your core business that is operating successfully and cash flowing wonderfully will start to fund the acquisitions that are underperforming. That's a ticking clock. You're going to work twice as hard for half as much in terms of income, and you're basically working to pay the bank note. And that is a terrible position to be in. Once again, it has a finite shelf life and you cannot sustain it forever. Uh, so as we think through these four major challenges, replacing yourself in a clinical capacity without taking an income hit, you know, attracting, motivating, and retaining associates, uh, getting the right funding, business-to-business funding solution with a credit facility and not hitting the debt funding wall, and then executing on your growth strategy, whether it's buy or build or a blend of both. These are the four major things you've got to get straight if you're going to build a group practice. And if you can, and if you can execute on all of them, maybe not uh, all at at the same time, but you know, taking down one of these major challenges um, in each of the next coming uh, six months to a year timeframes, you're probably going to build a very uh, successful group practice that cash flows wonderfully, uh, is sustainable, uh, and that you're going to have confidence operating. Um, And you may not build a 10 to 20 location group. It may be four to six locations, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But I would tell you that solving for these four uh, increases the likelihood of success substantially. Getting one of them significantly wrong um, creates a lot of jeopardy. Uh, and and we see that, unfortunately, all too often. So if you want to dig into any uh, of these topics or, or anything else, um, especially around this time of year, I'd tell you to consider uh, reaching out and, and asking about a discovery day. It might be the right tool in the toolbox, right uh, solution for you. And like I say, it's one-on-one. So you can you can ask any question you want to me or DeWalker or Mark or any of our advisors in that environment. We have ample opportunity over that six to seven hour day together to go really deep in terms of subject matter and make sure that we solve the, the fundamentals for, for success in your business. And obviously, if you've already started down your growth journey and um you know we're looking for a a day to spend with an advisor that might be akin to something like a strategic planning session um those those days function equally well for that and those are usually days that are all but unscripted uh for the the basis or the balance of the entire day and those are kind of fun too so um it is a it is a a one-day service that we offer that's very popular um and i I thought i might talk about in the context of of these challenges i certainly hope you got a lot out of today's episode there are wonderful opportunities to to build a group practice i understand lending rates are are seemingly sky high for us right now and they may be for a little while but it doesn't change the the dynamics of the industry that we that we're in in a healthcare service environment be it dentistry ophthalmology dermatology optometry behavioral health cosmetics anything like that it is a wonderful time to build a group practice and if you get the foundations right you certainly have an opportunity to to build a more successful business and um, we'd love the opportunity to to be a a guide uh, and a resource for you Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.